Welcome back to the Assemblage Wine Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Shoemaker. Uh, today's guest is a longtime best friend of mine. Um, we met at the Culinary Institute of America in Hyde Park, um, Mason Aronson. Uh, he wrote probably one of the uh, best bios that I've heard in a long time. Uh, not to say that my other guests didn't write awesome bios, but his is very uh, poetic. And, you know, I'm just going to kind of uh, read it as he wrote it because I, I really like it. Uh, so Mason was born in California, raised in Sedona, Arizona. He went to college at the Culinary Institute of America in Hyde Park, New York, and spent a semester at the St. Helena uh, campus in California for his wine semester away. He said it's been a crazy ride that brought him across the country multiple times. He thinks that culinary school, although it's tough, it is definitely a dream that when you finally wake up, you wish you could always go back. Uh, things that he loves are to have a conversation who's willing with anyone who's willing to talk and listen. Food is life. Life is passion, and passion creates art like anything else. Unlike anything else, in the hospitality industry, you get to fill your your mind, heart, and your stomach with that art. Mason Aronson, welcome to the podcast. How are you today? I'm doing great. How are you doing, Adam? I'm good. Thank you for asking. Um, we've been. Uh, now at this point, longtime friends. Uh, it feels like just yesterday we were at CIA and and being roommates and graduating and all that kind of stuff. But it's already been uh, it's going on five years in July, which is crazy uh, wow. since we graduated. Um, and, but before we kind of get to talking about our time at CIA, um, I kind of want to know how you got your start in the hospitality industry and kind of what guided you to the point of attending CIA? Yeah, um, well, that's a, that's a good question. Uh, you know, there's a lot of factors that all add up to everybody moving uh, to CIA. It's like, you know, it's a big choice. It's um, There's three campuses, as you all know, um, but New York being the main hub was like the calling because, you know, New York City is the best. But started with my childhood, you know, growing up, I just had a natural want to be in the kitchen or be part of the hospitality industry. Most kids I felt like my age asked for, you know, like uh, transformers or cars or something like that. And for some reason, I always asked for like bread makers and ice cream makers growing up. So, you know, my parents thought I was a weirdo in a good way and they, lo they loved to encourage me and they gave me all those kind of avenues that I wanted. Um, you know, something which, which was just awesome is not only did my parents notice, but my family noticed, uh, specifically um, one of my cousins, uh, her name's Megan. Uh, she introduced me to my first chef. Um, his name was Chef Andrew. And he, the, the two of them kind of got me on this path of what I actually want to do with my life in terms of the Culinary Institute and the world of hospitality. I, you know, started off just, you know, wanting to see what would happen. And um, Megan did a couple of introductions and got me uh, on a little TV show that she was trying to create back in the day when I was turning 16. And um, uh, Chef Andrew was the, the first chef that I truly met. And, you know, he became a lifelong mentor that I still talk to and connect with. 
Uh, but he showed me how to make chicken cordon bleu as my very first official dish of, you know, being taught professionally. And then from there on, uh, just kind of worked into CIA. Yeah, and I know that you're from um, Arizona. So going all the way to New York, uh, I mean, that's a trek and you road trip there, right? So like you drove cross country, um, you know, from Arizona, which is not the furthest place I guess you could have driven from, but pretty, pretty darn close, um, pretty close. all the way to New York. Um, <laughs> what, besides the, the New York campus being like the main hub of CIA, like what made you want to go there as opposed to, you know, going to California or going to uh, San Antonio? Yeah, well, you know, as every 18 year old uh, kid trying to get out of their small town, wanting to go to a big city, you know, and trying to get as far away from your parents at the same time as possible. Uh, New York was the calling, but it also being the major hub of the world where everybody goes to figure out what the best culinary items, the next hospitality steps, everything surrounding our world everybody looks to New York as the main hub. So I was like, it's got to be this place. And when I was uh, probably about 17, uh, my grandparents took me on a little small one-week vacation just to go visit. And uh, from there on, when I was in the city, I was like, this is where I need to be. I know it. Yeah, and I, I feel you. Like, I'm, I was not as far away from home as you were when I moved to CIA, but, you know, I'm from – Indiana just outside of Chicago so it's a good like 13 14 hour drive away from where I'm from and you know I kind of had that same small town like wanting to go out do my own thing Um, you know I had some opportunities closer to home but um, I really like for me the biggest thing was like proving it to myself that I could go out go somewhere that I knew nowhere or that I knew no one and um, you know just see if I could make it work and uh, you know and of course, the CIA is, you know, prestigious and the best culinary school in the world. But, uh, you know, I think that we both are similar minded in the in the fact that we want to, like, do stuff for ourselves and go out there and, like, prove that we can do it even with, you know, against all odds, I guess, if you if you will. I agree. Maybe that's why we became such great friends so quickly. <laughs> I know it was like uh, pretty, pretty much instant within like a couple weeks we were we were good friends. And then, uh, you know, after the first semester, uh, you know, we moved in, we, we became roommates and we were roommates for like the two and a half years, pretty much on and off. But uh, the remainder yeah, of the time, except for when we did our semesters away, that was the only yeah. time. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it was, it was a lot of fun. Uh, we'll, we'll get into kind of those, those fun times uh, in a few minutes, but I want to know, like, what has been kind of the biggest takeaways, um, you know, whether it's just one or multiple from graduating from CIA, um, you know, like how has it impacted uh, your career path and where you are now? You know, I think one of the biggest thing is when you first go there, uh, realizing that there are so many like-minded people all wanting the same goal. And when you go to CIA, or at least before they did, they changed up a couple of the programs, um, the first two years or year and a half of your associate's degree, you either did culinary arts or you did baking and pastry. And those were your two choices and that's it. And everybody took the same exact classes in the same exact order, either, when you, either or uh, whatever path you chose. 
And with so many people, you know, wanting that same goal, I don't know about how you felt, but it was just like, wow, I could either look forward or I can look back and I can see everything happening all at once. And everybody around me all want the same thing. Uh, yeah, and it is kind of like, they kind of put you, put everyone or, you know, again, but like you said, it's changed since uh, we were there. But, you know, everyone has pretty much the same experience. I mean, it might depend like what chef you have for which class or, you know, um, like whether you're AM or PM student, you know, there's a couple of variables, but a lot of it's like what you take out of the class and what you take from each chef and from your, from your, you know, fellow students and stuff like that. Um, you know, there was a lot of people who, you know, I know that we went to school with and, you know, people that decided not to go to CI, they're like, oh, it's just so expensive. Or, you know, they were the type of students that like maybe didn't take advantage of like going to class early or going to the learning center and like getting tutoring help or, you know, doing stages on the weekends or volunteering for chef speakers that were coming in. Um, and those people were like, oh, CIA is not worth it. Um, and, you know, like, to me, the biggest takeaway was like, just the connections that we made. Um, and, you know, the opportunities that we were given just by like, putting ourselves out there, um, totally. you know, and uh, that, that game day grub match. Um, <laughs> and for, yeah. for those of you who, who don't know, we were Mason and I, uh, we, I don't even know how that opportunity came about. But we were it basically was just our like, connections. Yeah, through our connections, we were basically like asked to fill out an application to be on a Pepsi uh, sponsored uh, Super Bowl cooking competition. Um, and we had to submit like a video. Um, and that's probably like the first time I've done anything like, you know, a video or, or like, you know, goofy putting ourselves out there and probably only like 20 people ever saw this video, but um, we wanted to like stand out and be chosen for this cooking competition. So we did like this crazy, uh, I don't even remember what exactly it was, but I just remember like doing different sports things and saying it's not intense enough. And then like, you know, it, <laughs> and then it like, it pans very roughly to us in our dorm room with like, you know, like a suit on and we're just talking about like how we deserve to be in this cooking competition. And, uh, and then, you know, we, we meet Ann Burrell and like all these cool people that were uh, the MC and like the ones that were, um, you know, hosting the cooking competition and do this two day cooking. And uh, we were given this big box of like food at the end of it, which was awesome for college kids who couldn't afford to eat on the weekends. So oh, we just yeah. got like all these pet like all this junk food and like hummus and like just random stuff from pepsi um and like drinks like all this soda and stuff um you know it's just like things like that definitely made cia like worth it um besides the great education but just like those connections that we made and like just goofing around and like making those those stupid videos I agree The you know, uh, I think we called it shelling on the Lay's potato chip sand. <laughs> we had to do that, that, that shrimp uh, dish and we got forced to do it. And we still got, I think the most, I think everybody who came to eat 
uh, the popular vote. We got that, but of course the judges didn't like us because it was shrimp for Super Bowl. Nobody really yeah. eats shrimp for Super Bowl. <laughs> yeah, and, and I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna complain about that for a second. I know it's been, uh, <laughs> been like it's probably been like eight eight years since we did this cooking competition, but you know they the the judges were like you know oh it's a super super bowl competition why would you choose shellfish when we had to use shellfish like they everyone's like you know each group had a different protein and someone's like oh you get chicken you get uh skirt steak you get pork and you guys get shellfish for a super bowl competition and i'm like who the hell eats shellfish for for a super bowl party you know, like besides like your shrimp cocktail or something like that. Like I've never right. been to a Super Bowl party where like the main fun appetizer is a crab cake or like, you know, <laughs> maybe right. we just don't have rich enough friends or a rich enough like group of people. But it's like Super Bowl to me is like a burger, wings, you know, like pizza, uh, tacos, stuff like that. Not like a, a bacon wrapped shrimp with a crab cake like of course it's not super bowl food but we didn't have any other choice um so there's there's my rant you know i'm still a little Amber, salty if you're about listening it. to this which i know you're not because uh you know why would you be i'm still mason and i are still salty um you know about our our big super bowl cooking competition loss uh but we still got a scholarship and a bunch of free food from pepsi so you know, at the end of the day, we were, we were still winners, but yeah, um, still, still upset about that decision that we had to use shellfish. Oh yeah. But it is what it is. <laughs> it is. And, you know, maybe, maybe that was the turning point. I never really thought about it. And, and, you know, maybe it was the turning point to get us both out of the kitchen and into front of house. Um, but, you know, kind of a weird segue. I really wasn't anticipating uh, using that as a segue into the next point, but it actually sort of works. Yeah. Um, but so since graduating, you know, we both, uh, uh, I mean, on and off, we've been in the kitchen a little bit, but kind of overall as a grand, like, look, o- overlook of our uh, career post CIA, uh, we both went from being like very culinary focused to more front of house and management oriented. Um, what inspired you to make this change to get out of the kitchen and more into front of house and management? Yeah, you know, there's, I think there's so many factors that kind of contribute to that. Um, you know, specifically, maybe, you know, the PepsiCo competition. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, you know, uh, in Associates, uh, we had wine class. And I think that first introduction to wine 101 uh, was probably one of my favorite, most intense classes ever. Basically, uh, for all those who don't know, it's a three. So most classes at CIA were three weeks. So you had uh, the first week was your introduction. The midweek you had your midterm and the final week you had your final. So basically every three weeks you were uh, you were <laughs> having a midterm and a final within three weeks and multiple classes at a time. It was crazy. Um, but I think that really kind of introduced me to the wine world. And I was just so fascinated by what it could offer and kind of brought me down this path of, you know, well, the hospitality industry doesn't just mean you have to be a chef. It means so many different things. And then, you know, some, you know, two of the other factors that are really big are uh, money and time. And most chefs don't make very much money compared to the front of house compart- uh, constituents. 
and the amount of time that you have to put in, um, in terms of um, being physically there, you, as a front of house person, you get to have more of a life outside of work. And having that beautiful balance of both was just so amazing um, to have that availability. Um, those, I would say, like really got me down that path when they started talking about it. And, you know, when you start thinking about it and being a hospitalitarian or whatever else you want to call it, uh, taking care of people is like the most important thing. Um, and just making sure people feel good and happy. And um, I found my niche doing that specifically. Uh, I think it was a cross between inspiration from uh, school um, from people like Scott Reinhardt, uh, Danny Meyer, uh, Kevin Zarelli, all people that have all front of house based uh, work life and just push to become some of the best in the world. And, you know, they, they really just caught my interest in how they did it and what they did. And um, then being able to work underneath Scott Reinhardt and slash Danny Meyer and learning from Kevin Zarelli specifically from um, um, his books and from meeting him uh, at CIA, New York and CIA, Napa Valley when he came to visit, uh, just kind of pushed me towards that. Um, you know, there's, there's just so many things that you could say, put, I think myself, and I'm sure yourself into that front of house role that just all compiled together that made it just that much more compelling to be a part of it. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with you. And like that wine class, like it kicked our butts, but I've never been so like obsessed with studying for a class as I were as I was in that class. And you also like had yeah. to be or else you were going to fail. Um, <laughs> yeah. But like, I've, I don't think I we ever spent so much time in the library. And we both spent a lot of time in the library just because we were nerds. But, um, you know, like we we were constantly at the library or studying while we were eating lunch, eating dinner before bed, like doing note cards and stuff like that. Like we just for three weeks straight, just like completely obsessed about wine. And we both weren't even like of age to actually drink wine, um, which is crazy to like think about. Um I think you were 20 and I was 19. Um, You know, we could taste wine extra. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, We could, we could both taste wine in class, but we couldn't like go and buy wine to taste it outside of class. And I actually uh, came across my wine notes uh, not too long ago. I think it was right before I moved. We were like cleaning out a bunch of stuff and I found like all my tasting notes from wines class at CIA. And we actually, we tasted some like really cool things. Um, I kind of forgot about all that because I feel like you're just you're tasting all these cool things, but you're still you're young and you don't really know anything about wine, but you're learning and you're not really like thinking about like the producers that they had us taste or the the vintages that you had that they had us taste like we were tasting some like crazy stuff. Um, I don't remember off the top of my head what they all were. And I I'm sure I have those papers somewhere around here, but um, you know, that was, that was a really cool, you know, kind of like, I think a big turning point for both of us. Um, and I kind of want to like, you know, after CIA and like after graduating from bachelor's and you spending a semester in California out in Napa, uh, studying wine, uh, kind of like talk me through like what your career has been since CIA. 
um, you know, get into as much detail or as little detail as you'd like. But, um, you know, I feel like everyone has just such an interesting path from graduating, um, you know, and, and you have an extremely interesting path. Uh, so like, I'd love to hear about it. Totally. Um, well, I don't think it's that interesting because of how, how much of a headache it was, but uh, I just want to make before going into the, you know, afterwards, you know, I think one of the big factors of my life post CIA was meeting uh, my now fiance that I'm going to get married to in October um, this year, which I'm very, very excited about um, meeting her at CIA Napa Valley. Um, and, you know, that really, you know, getting to know her and us to uh, doing our semester way in Napa Valley and learning all that really pushed us into the new life that we've, you know, started together here. Um, but post-graduation, um, I did a quick six-month stint in Colorado at Breakthrough Beverage and um, found that, you know, beverage distribution really wasn't my niche. It was um, not for me and also doing long distance with my fiance, now fiance, is, was really hard. Um, but when we, when I finally made the decision to move back to New York city, um, and find Gramercy Tavern, I knew I found, uh, my home in the world of, of front of house and hospitality. Um, Gramercy Tavern, I think first off was the most amazing, probably the second most amazing experience, probably in line with CIA in terms of meeting the most amazing people in the world pushing myself to be the best of the best and um, just trying something completely out of my wheelhouse consistently. Um, at Gramercy Tavern, I, I got hired in as a back waiter, uh, moved myself up to barista, then to front waiter, then to maitre d', and I was trying to work my way into either the bar or management, and then, of course, the pandemic hit. But during my time at Gramercy, um, I met some of the best friends in the world. I got taught by some of the, the coolest leaders uh, that I've ever come encountered with. And um, just, I feel like Gramercy at the time when I joined was one of one of its peaks of its time. Um, just being so uh, amazing and beautiful and having such a like knowledgeable and dedicated family almost. Like I think honestly, it was a family at Gramercy the things that they did for each other, the things we did for each other to make sure we were all taken care of um, was just so amazing. And it still kind of trends down now into uh, after everybody has left Gramercy for the most part. There's still a couple that are back. Um, but of course, when the pandemic hit, um, Danny Meyer was the first one to furloughed the entire company, which um, during that time was probably the weirdest, the hardest thing ever um and looking back at it now he was unfortunately and fortunately the visionary that everybody needed for union square hospitality group um because he got us all off of working there and able to join unemployment almost immediately and that's when really the downturn spiraled like in march is when he kind of did that and then as everybody knows april uh we really hit hard into uh the pandemic and then you know, the next six months were basically a blur of, you know, what is happening? Is New York going to come back? Is it going to survive? And of course, it always will come back. And it'll just, you know, change as it does every every so often. 
into the new beast that it is and you have to either want to live there still or um you know move out and try something new and you know me and my fiance at the time um we already knew we wanted to move south and we wanted to move um to be uh somewhere closer to her family because um, my biggest thing is as long as my family can fly in i'm happy to be wherever because uh you know living we now live in charlotte and um you know the airport's 15 minutes away so it's real easy for my parents to get in and out my brother and i get to see them often enough that it makes me happy um but moving from gramercy um i did this crazy jump and gramercy tavern being a one michelin star restaurant the expectation level for you being there is high as can be you have to be on your a game all the time giving the most hospitality service uh, hospitable service ever. Um, and I'm sure you felt it, um, at all the stints that you've been to, like, uh, working under Grant Ackett's, you know? Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, but after, after Grimacy, I had to, to find something new and, um, I had a connection within one of the owners of one of the largest owning ship of Taco Bell slash KFCs in North and South Carolina. And so I decided, well, you know, let's try it out. Let's see what can happen. And I tried uh, a one-year stint, which that's a long time at fast food, um, as a GM of a Taco Bell. And I, I survived, I guess is the best way to describe it, but <laughs> learned so much. Um, and I think one of the biggest takeaways from that uh, from moving from Gramercy Tavern, high, high end, fine dining, all the way down to, you know, basically, if not the bottom, the bo- uh, pretty close to the bottom of the total pool in terms of food in the consideration of the world. Um, and, you know, the one correlation I found that was exactly the same, no matter how high and how low you go is everybody wants the food to come out exactly the same as they have designed it, whatever that may be. And that one correlation, I think, when I made that connection, really inspired me to push hard with that team. Um, And while I was there, I probably ran one of the best Taco Bells that you had ever been to. People were nice, and if they weren't nice, they were let go pretty quickly. Um, I knew my team, uh, after they finally figured out what I wanted and were willing to do it, uh, we had some of the, some of the best connections that even when I took a little vacation while I was there, uh, one of my bosses who stepped in, who had never met anybody on the team cause he had just got, or just got, um, assigned to me as a new, uh, leader, uh, was just like, man, your team is so willing to say yes and so willing to help. And that was the, you know, the mindset that I expected out of everybody. You know, we we want to have the most hospitality forward business ever in any business you want to be in, I think, in our world, because that's how you create continuous revenue and continuous uh, feedback and continuous uh, partnerships, uh, people willing to come back and enjoy your place. Um, but after Taco Bell, I, I knew I knew it wasn't for me shortly uh, into it, but I, you know, was trying to make it through it to try to, you know, win the world of money. Um, and, you know, when you're in the hospitality world from, from so high up to so low and you want hospitality to be your life, 
just fast food is just not for you. And I, I think I found that out pretty quickly. Um, I did, you know, stay there for quite a while. Um, and then finally, I found this new concept um, here in Charlotte. It's actually a little bit north in Davidson called Milk Bread that I have started with now. Um, and Milk Bread is this um, beautiful fried chicken and donut shop stop for lunch, uh, healthy bites and, and not, you know, uh, fried chicken is delicious. Um, but, um, you know, the owners, Katie and Joe Kindred, um, are just these, these people inspired, uh, by hospitality, inspired by Danny Meyer, inspired by wanting to create the best life for their employees, but also create the best hospitality here in Charlotte. And they have sure done it with their main staple restaurant, Kindred, and and definitely are building it with their second restaurant, Hello Sailor still, and then Milk Bread as our third restaurant being that. And, you know, going from, from all the way from the top, from fine dining to fast food, to now this somewhere in between uh, Milk Bread, uh, it's just been the path that is wild and weird, you know? Yeah, and I think that it's it's super important, like, as as a takeaway or at least like the takeaway that i you know get from your story is like don't be afraid to like put yourself out there um you know try something new and if it doesn't work just take what you can from the place and like use it as a learning experience and move on like find something new um you know there's a ton of different restaurants different styles of restaurants um and not just restaurants you know there's you know, maybe distribution is for you. Maybe it's not. Maybe, you know, um, you want to work in retail. Maybe you want to work in grocery stores. I mean, there is just so many outlets um, that you can kind of fall into in the hospitality industry. So, um, and I think that you're like a perfect example of that and someone that's been like stayed positive through it all. Um, And I know like Taco Bell is pretty rough for you. And like, (laughs) you know, whenever we would talk, I'd be like, man, like, you know, Mason's still thriving, but like, I can tell it's like starting to break him a little bit, Um, you know, and, but all you can be is be supportive and like, you know, hope that you get out of it after a while or, or not, you know, whatever, whatever your path is. But I think just being open and and moving around and figuring out where your niche is and uh, what's going to make you happy. And um, I think that's, you know, a super important takeaway uh, from that story. And like, you know, we both have had different paths and different outcomes, but I think we both wouldn't change anything for, you know, I think your path is responsible for where you're going to be today and where you're going to be tomorrow. So um, I think that, you know, just embracing your path and whatever that may be, um, you know, is is super important. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. I think, you know, just the path you choose now does not have to be the path you stay on there are so Mm -hmm. many branches and just you know like you said you know learning from each experience is so important and no matter what no matter how dark or sad or happy you become there's always uh something to take away from every experience you do and that's what makes us us and makes you want to create your future the way you want to and it's it's so difficult to know in the moment exactly what you want because you have an idea of what you really want. And then 
all of a sudden you get a curveball and you're like, well, that's not for me anymore. And then, you know, I think realizing that and being able to say, you know, this is not for me anymore, picking up and moving on to something different is a very important lesson to learn, especially that I have learned specifically from Taco Bell, you know? Yeah. And, uh, you know, very well said and, and uh, kind of, uh, you know, transitioning more into like the beverage side, because I know a lot of my listeners are, you know, they're, they're all about hearing people's story and all that kind of stuff. But I like to throw in, um, you know, wine and beverage stuff as well. Um, and I know that uh, you have your uh, level one through CMS uh, sommelier. Um, so yeah. I kind of want to talk about wine and uh, what your favorite styles or producers or um, kind of just what wine are you drinking now and leading into the summer season? Because, uh, boy, is it getting hot out there already? Oh, my gosh. It is so ridiculous hot. So ridiculously hot here in North Carolina. Like, I think today is at like 95 and it's like 90% humidity. So you're like outside and sticky as soon as you get out there. Um, but going into the, the wine, I think uh, my opinion on drinking and eating is everything, everything you do, everything you eat all has a place, a time, and a purpose. Um, so no matter what, what I mean by that is, you know, I'm not going to drink um, something that doesn't fit what I'm feeling at this moment if I'm sitting on the beach, right? For me, when I go sit on the beach, I'm going to drink like a Corona with a lime or a pina colada or something light and fruity. But um, I think it all depends on what you're doing, what you're eating, um, where you're at. You know, there's so many outside factors. But besides that, I'd say my classics, my go-tos are always Riesling, Chenin Blanc, Champagnes for the most part for my top three. And then I'd probably throw rosés that I've just kind of started to really get into this year. Um, my fiance Alex, uh, is a new distributor here in uh, Charlotte working for the Kellogg Group. Um, she is doing an amazing job there. But, um, you know, with that, I get to, you know, taste more wines more often again, which is really exciting. Um, so she's really been getting me on the path of, you know, rosés and other kind of things. But going back to, I would say, Riesling being my top choice. And within that top choice, I would say Donhoff is probably my always go to. Like they do such a great style of, you know, dry, semi-sweet kind of Rieslings. And, and, and I don't know, it's just such an old winemaker and, 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 um, not winemaker, but, um, uh, label that has just been around for so long that has just created a style that I think I just, you know, pair with so well. I don't, I'm not sure what you're, if you're a big white drinker yourself, but, um, you know, I don't know. You just got to find what you love. Um, and then if I had to, if we were going into champagne, I would say Krug, but unfortunately Krug is so expensive and it's like impossible to get right now. <laughs> yeah, it, it is. It's, it's delicious, but it is, uh, definitely on the, uh, you know, upscale high priced, uh, and also like, like you're right. It's super hard to find. Um, 
I think the only time I've seen Krug down here, um, not that I look for it all the time, but the only time I've really noticed it is at this like local wine shop and they have one Magnum of Krug and it's like $500. So <laughs> just, I'm like, it's not going to buy that. <laughs> I'm like, I'm like, I wonder how long that's been sitting there. Cause like, and it's in a, it's in a temperature controlled, uh, you know, room and stuff, but I'm like, God, that's just like so much money to drop on a bottle of champagne. And uh, maybe one day we'll get there, buddy, but I don't think yeah. now's the time. It's definitely not the time yet. Um, not yet, but maybe soon. Maybe yeah, one of us will yeah. hit the lottery. <laughs> yeah, one one can only hope. Uh, but yeah, like I I agree with like the the riesling. It's super super fresh and fun and and bright for summers. And then like I'm I'm also a big champagne or just sparkling wine in general. Um, you know, and like the thing that I've learned is like just it doesn't have to always be super expensive. Um, you just kind of have to know what to look for. Like if you're going to be Agreed. drinking champagne, it's definitely going to be higher priced, you know, and by higher price, like, I mean, you really have to be willing to spend like at least 30 to $40 on a like quality bottle of champagne. But, you know, there's Agreed. also some like really great alternative options that are made in the same style as champagne or very close to the same style of champagne. Like, uh, you know, you can look for Cremant, uh, you know, Cremant de Loire or Cremant de, um, you know, uh, I'm blanking on any other ones, but uh, <laughs> Cava is like, yeah, uh, you know, Cremant and Cava, they're, they're made in a very similar style to Champagne, but you're going to be able to get kind of those great Champagne characteristics for like half the price. Um, which is awesome. And then there's also some really great, uh, you know, Francia Corta, or there's some really great Proseccos on the market, or, uh, you know, classic method sparkling wines made in Italy, um, that are, you know, 20 bucks. Um, so there's some really great options out there. If you're just kind of getting into champagne and sparkling wine, you don't have to, you know, spend 40, 50 bucks on a bottle of champagne, you can find some really great uh, options that are definitely less expensive. Um, I don't, I never like to use the word cheap, um, but definitely less expensive. Um, reasonable. Than, you know, high reasonable. Yes. That's, that's a perfect, uh, a perfect example. And then next, like, I know you're big into cocktails and uh, I feel like every time we do like a uh, FaceTime happy hour, like you're always whipping up a cocktail with, you know, hand chipped ice and all that crazy stuff. Um, and we kind of, we were definitely 21 when we had this, um, but we had quite the dorm room bar. Um, <laughs> and we, like I told you, we were definitely 21 when we had this. So, like, if you're under 21 and in a dorm room, don't listen. Um, but, you know, like, we, we had the, the, the dorm room bar and, like, this kind of comes full circle to that game day grub match. They gave us, like, this big crate that you could, like, put a padlock on. Um, and you know, once all the, the Pepsi products were gone and we ate all the hummus and all the, you know, chips and whatever, uh, we, or I should say you converted the, uh, the, the box into a bar, um, that I did because CIA, CIA was very strict on like how much, uh, you know, wine or how much spirits you could have in your room if you were over 21. Um, and you know, like we definitely had more. Um, but you know, we, we had it locked in this box. So like no one ever knew, no one ever knew, or at least we didn't think anyone knew. Um, so kind of like, 
in the dorm room bar because I'm sure like our the brands we were buying and like the spirits we had were weren't really like the highest of quality. Um, we had a good selection, but they weren't like great liqueurs and liquors. Um, so I kind of want to know like what are the essentials for you and like you're building your your home bar or just yeah. like what spirits you have on hand. Yeah, um, I think uh, big essentials for myself um, is just having. I like to really have all of the devices available to me, like having a Boston shaker and uh, um, having the Hawthorne strainers and mixers and uh, the just like every, like all the jiggers. And, you know, I just like having all of the tools available um, so that I can, when I'm feeling it, I can really design a cocktail to be like, professional cocktail like restaurant quality gramercy tavern style cocktail um but i think really uh the most important thing uh for any person is just to have one specific shaker and that is the boston shaker i think having that classic glass on metal is like super important for just the home bar um you don't really need to have measuring devices that are like jiggers the normal bar bar uh equipment because really you can get anything to measure uh specifically the the amount of spirits that you want to do to make your drink but um besides that i think i really like to have the full full setup though so i have every tool under the sun um i i even have an entire like tool bag dedicated to all of my uh cocktail equipment um i think uh, spirits for choice. Uh, I'm a big um, whiskey drinker. I would say more on the bourbon side of the of the whiskeys. Um, but I've also been getting really deep into tequila, and uh, within that, um, specifically um, Anejo tequilas. Um, I think they kind of mimic and match almost what a um, whiskey and bourbon or anything like that kind of give you in terms of flavor profile weight etc once they start to really age uh so i've been having fun with that but i think for me my my favorite drink ever and um i think this is a shout out to to gramercy tavern um was probably the boulevardier which the boulevardier drink is like a Negroni, uh, equal parts, uh, sweet vermouth, um, uh, Campari, and uh, bourbon. Um, and uh, it's like, you know, where a Negroni is uh, gin. But I just like, it's such a classic, I think, drink that can be drank at any point of the meal. Before, during, or after, it kind of gets you going. Um, it's definitely going to be my drink of choice or our cocktail of choice at our wedding, which I'm very excited about. Um, but, but going back to the, the home bar essentials, I think um, you really know you have like a real home bar when you always have citrus on hand. And unfortunately, some of it's going bad. And you're like, dang, I forgot to use it because I got too busy doing too many other drinks. Uh, I don't know about you, but I think just having... A little bit of everything is very important. Um, 
one drink that I definitely want to promote that I don't think is known very well in the world uh, that is just an after-dinner drinker, really. You can drink it at any time. I would love to, but it's called Pomo. Um, Pomo is an apple liqueur, technically, and it's just uh, slightly sweet um, to heavily, heavily sweet, heavily. I'm saying the wrong words there. Uh, <laughs> but uh, it, it can be pretty sweet if you're if you've never had it before um but it's just a, a liqueur that is just absolutely mind-blowing if you're an apple fan and you just pour that straight in the glass and have it neat or have it all over over ice uh specifically a big rock and i know you kind of alluded to it but um back in uh napa valley cia is where i really got my ice making niche and um i carve or i create blocks of ice using the um, now blanking on, of course, the freezing method where you go top down freezing method. Um, yeah, directional, directional freezing. Thank you very much. Directional freezing. And I start creating my own blocks out of that. And I still do that to this day where I'll create, you know, I'd say there's somewhere between five and 10 pound blocks and I'll break them down into uh, cubes, diamonds, um, cylinders uh whatever else i'm kind of feeling rounds um just to enjoy for my cocktails to make them better um for my home cocktail like nobody else gets to see it except for me (laughs) and you if you come over of course but (laughs) yeah and i think it's it's super important like you know when you're building a home bar like you don't have to have literally everything it doesn't have to be like you're you're creating a bar for someone like for people to come over and like sit, you, you're not going to sell them alcohol. I think a lot of it's like choosing what spirits you really like and then getting some like different liqueurs or different types of syrups, whether you make your own or buy pre-made syrups, um, just to kind of like expand on whatever your base spirit is. Like if you don't love scotch, maybe you don't have a scotch at your house. Cause like, if you're not going to drink it, why buy it? That's like a big thing for me. Um, you know, and like, if you drink a lot of like tequila, let's like maybe have a Blanco or a silver an Añejo, a Reposado, um, and just kind of start like tasting each of those and like figuring out what you could do with them. Um, and a good thing is like, maybe buy yourself like a really great cocktail book too. Um, it doesn't have to be anything fancy or like, you it doesn't have to be like a death and co cocktail book or an aviary cocktail book or, you know, any of these like really high end bars, because realistically, like, you're not going to be making, you know, your own cordials and your own, you know, you're not going to have a rotary evaporator at your house, or you're not going to have like, some of these crazy tools that some of these bars have. Um, But just get a cocktail book that like, is simple recipes that you can easily make at home and that's a good way to kind of teach yourself and to learn more about you know certain spirits or certain liqueurs or cordials or um you know and then you can just kind of start building off of it once you get into tequila you know and you really like añejo like you said mason like maybe that can get you into drinking whiskey or bourbon or uh you know some of the lighter styles of whiskey um and then from there you can just start like building up the bar and then you know maybe you've got a friend who really likes gin and you start buying gin for them and you start drinking gin so it's a cool kind of way to you know 
evolve and morph into, you know, more, even if it starts really simple. And I'm sure that you started really simple, you know, buying like one bottle at a time. And then uh, pretty soon you've got 20 half full bottles that you can kind of play with and stuff like that. 100%. I think right now I have probably about 40 or 50, probably half, half or less bottles that I've just kind of had for a while that I've just been making drinks with and different styles. And then sometimes, you know, you, you enjoy the bottle for a little bit and then you put it at the back of your bar and you forget about it for a while. And, and then you start look, or reorganizing, dusting all your bottles off. And then you're like, Oh, I forgot I had this. And then brings back all the recipe ideas that you had from it or the inspirations you've had from it. Um, I would definitely plug a couple of books for, uh, just that kind of got me on the path, which was the ultimate bar book, the essential bar book and A to Z guide and the mixers manual. Um, those are all three books that like, I think I, I read cover to cover multiple times. Um, they're really, you know, it's kind of hard reading, I think bar books or wine books, even if you're not really into it. So just kind of picking out pages of those. Um, but I don't know. I, I don't know. I think having just something on hand to reference will always be helpful, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I agree with that. And and the great thing about spirits, unlike wine is you don't have a timeline on like when you have to enjoy those spirits by like, they're not going to oxidize. They're not going to go bad. Um, with the exception of like maybe vermouth, um, you know, that's something that like has somewhat of a shelf life on it, but like, you know, whiskey, gin tequila vodka rum they don't go bad so you can have you know multiple open bottles at a time and it's not like a rush to get them drank um so that's kind of another good thing as opposed to wine where once it's open you maybe have two or three days to enjoy it so uh that's kind of something to think about too when you're building your bar is it's it's a long-term investment um you know and and buying those bottles and learning how to make cocktails at home uh, you know, you'll end up saving a lot of money. Um, obviously, it might not be as like fun or interesting to go out. Um, but you know, it's still a good kind of thing to say, hey, maybe let's stay in tonight and just have cocktails and, you know, get in pajamas and, and just have fun that way. Yeah, and always test what your skills can do. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, you know, I, uh, I know that uh, you're, you're a busy guy, and uh, it's probably your one day off this week. So <laughs> um, I think we're gonna we're gonna wrap this up, but I I really wanted to thank you for for coming on this podcast and kind of sharing uh, you know a little bit about your knowledge and kind of your experience you know uh, leading up to CIA post CIA and kind of you know how you've gotten to the point you're at today. Um, and I you know I really really appreciate this past uh, fifty minutes or so. Um, and it's always great to kind of catch up to you or catch up with you and uh, you know just kind of chat. Yeah, I agree, brother. Um, I think, you know, I want to thank you for just having me on here and uh, just the friendship that we've had uh, from the past to now and the continuation. I'm excited for you to be at my wedding and to be at yours as well. Uh, we both have lucky gals that we are lucky to have. And, you know, um, just keep on doing what you do, brother. You're an amazing man, you know. Thanks, man. And um, I'm looking forward to your uh, bachelor party. I'll be sure to bring some uh, some cool bottles of wine and maybe some cool spirits for us to uh, enjoy over that weekend. Oh, yeah, that's going to be great. All right, man. Well, thanks uh, for your time. And uh, we'll I'll be in touch soon.
Sounds good, brother.